This time on Two Diligence, I'm in the studio with Rick Mullins, executive chef of Cafe Sebastian in the Kemper Art Museum. Welcome to Two Diligence. This is Jill Silva and my podcast co-host, Lindsay Shively, has a special assignment, so I'm here going solo today. She's at the Chiefs uh, game, really tough, tough assignment, and I luckily have Haley, our producer, keeping me in line here. Thanks for being here, Haley. Hey. I love to make her talk on the mic. We always try to see if we can do that. And it worked. Yay. Yeah, one word. One word. We'll try to pull you in later here. Um, Today I'm in the studio with Rick Mullins. He's the executive chef of Cafe Sebastian, which is a gem located within uh, Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art. One of my favorite spots to bring people who come from out of town. And we're going to talk a little bit about food. So Rick, we were talking before we got on air about where you've been eating lately. Yeah, yeah. Waldo Thai has been probably where I've frequented the most recently. So I love that place. It is always good. And the menu's kind of always evolving in some form or another. So <clears throat> that's one way to keep me interested is to always have something changing on your menu. So whenever chefs or anyone has a stagnant menu, I find it, I'm more, a little more reluctant to go check out, you know, their restaurants. Absolutely. And so Pam Liberta's the chef there, and we've had her on the show before. Um, tell me a little bit about what you're eating there. What do you like? Uh, pretty much any of the curries. Um, pretty big fan of curry. Uh, me too. <laughs> the lob. My wife gets the lob every single time and with sticky rice. I have an obsession with sticky rice. Oh, uh, yeah. do tell. Yeah, yeah. So we have we have we have several friends from uh, with roots in Southeast Asia, and so it seems like at every single type of dinner or like any like gathering we do, there's always some sort of sticky rice. Anything that I can eat with my hands and the texture is just being able to separate those grains and be able to feel them. Um, it's just it's like fascinating to me, especially after you know I've eaten overcooked rice for so long and improperly cooked rice to have something like that. I don't know. It just kind of highlights how special grains really are, you know, and rice in particular. I mean, how much of the world does that feed? So a huge amount, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? So and I have mentioned this before, but I, we eat a lot of rice at my house because my husband's Brazilian, so that's a yeah. staple more than potatoes are. And of course, we live in the Midwest. So my kids are always saying, you know, like everybody eats potatoes. Nobody knows how (laughs) to make rice or eat rice. And and you're right. There's so many varieties of rice. Talk a little bit about sticky rice, because I don't know if everybody who's listening would be all that familiar. I only learned about sticky rice maybe in the last couple of years. Um, It's fascinating to me. And I, I needed a tutorial on how to eat it, you know, properly, use yeah, your, sure. your hands and dip sure. and how to do that. But um, I don't even think I know how to cook it. I'm not sure I know how to cook it properly either, to be honest. Oh, we can you. learn together sometime. Right. right. Um, one of our friends for a wedding gift bought us what we need, the actual stuff to cook sticky rice. But, um, I mean, my time is really limited at home. So my, my wife's actually the chef at home. So, ah, I love it. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, we haven't really had a lot of opportunity to play with cooking it. Um, I know it's a really interesting process, long soak, and I know it's a lot of steam more than anything. But uh, man, if I were to sit here and actually try to t- tell people how to cook sticky rice, I'd probably be telling a lie. So. <laughs> That's okay. You can yeah. ask Pam how to do that, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So her curries are just awesome, and she's yeah. really focusing yeah. on um, northern cuisine, correct? Sure. So sure. is there any dish that surprised you that you just haven't had anywhere else? Um, I really, really enjoy it. There's a dish that has brisket and pumpkin with a curry on it, and I really enjoy that. Uh, beef's not something I eat particularly like that often. I am not necessarily a huge fan of beef, but also have somewhat of an ethical obligation to not eat a lot of beef. Um, but I couldn't resist that. And it's, a, I think, a peanut-based curry. Mm-hmm. And it is just, it's unreal. Um, I'm really fascinated with cultures that use heavy spices. Um, and you'll kind of notice um, in the cuisines of places like South America, Mexico, a lot of Asia, Africa, 
where the spice trade went. So there's a lot of common denominators in those cuisines. And uh, just the use of heavy spices in her food just kind of, I don't know, it just does it for me. Yeah, that curry, yeah. I've had it, and it is just good. really spectacular. And at the dinner I was at, she described how that um, came about. And, it, it, you know, you think there's a whole bunch of peanut butter in there maybe or yeah, something, and it's yeah. just not even. Right. Um, she just has a really interesting technique in, in pursuing that. Um, so let's go to your restaurant. Um, Cafe Sebastian, beautiful space, lots of art, interesting architecture, um, and really cool food. And you just sort of alluded to a little bit of your, your, uh, ethical stance and, you know, your philosophy in cooking. We've talked about it. This is, I think the bulk of what we're going to be talking about today. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really interested in what you're doing over there. So talk a little bit about um, what the restaurant's like for people who may not have been there. And as I say, I take all kinds of people who sure. come to town. So they're always really impressed with just the whole, the whole package. Yeah. Um, I think for a while there's a little bit of a misconception about the restaurant and how the menus, um, how little they change, you know, alluding back to not, you know, going to restaurants because the you know there's no evolution in the menu and um our approach there is i mean it's it's simple it you know it's some people kind of act like it's more complicated than it really is um we have a responsibility to <clears throat> cook what we uh procure locally um and that's a huge thing for us uh, we don't involve a lot of pro like meats uh we will use fish occasionally chicken but uh, most of it's a lot vegetarian or vegan, stuff like that. Um, we definitely have tried to take a whole animal approach. So that's kind of why we don't have beef or, you know, we don't use a lot of pork or anything like that. Um, not because we don't not because we don't like pork, because mm -hmm. I love pork. Yeah. It's delicious. Um, it is. But I just, you know, I don't have room. I mean, the, my walk-in cooler is about the size of this room, actually. At the so, podcast studio. Yeah. Pretty small. Yeah. So I can't, like... <laughs> even imagine what it would be like to try to put a whole hog in there. You know, we just don't have yeah. room for stuff like that. But, you know, creatively, we just, everyone's got their hands in it. I mean, even the people who just started, you know, we have a, you know, one of our cooks just started probably a month and a half ago, two months ago, and he actually had input on the dim sum menu. So, and this is a person who doesn't have a lot of experience as a cook. So we're trying to take everybody's influence, and that's kind of allowed us to, like, have a continually evolving menu because there's so many minds on it, you know, it's not really necessarily about me getting any type of shine or me getting any type of credit for what's going on. It's more for me, more about how we can, as a team, create something that's great, you know. Mm -hmm. So we kind of approach it that way. We certainly have a high focus on what's happening locally um, as far as our produce and proteins, but also we have a, a global approach. All of us have influences from all over the world. Mine in particular is a lot of Latin America. Um, one of my chefs has a lot of influence from Asia. So we kind of just play with things and do, honestly, whatever we want to do. So That's a great platform to have. It's not a bad one. So do you consider yourself a farm-to-table restaurant? I know you're very interested in working with local farmers sure. and do a lot of that. So let's, let's really, talk about the evolution of that yeah, idea. I don't, I don't really know what that means. You know, uh, technically everything's farm-to-table. I mean, if you want to get down to details, sure, like, we rely heavily on our farmers, um, and we have very, very, we've cultivated very rich, deep relationships with our farmers. But I don't know a farm to table. I mean, I'd never really even thought about how to describe what we do. We just, I mean, I guess we just go to we go in and cook. You know, yeah. I guess technically it could be called farm to table, but we don't bill ourselves that way. I guess so. Mm -hmm. um, I never really think about these aspects, to be honest with you. I'm kind of just the type of person where we, you know, we just go in and we get to work and we cook and we just do whatever we're feeling. So, you know, if we decide something's not working for us, you know, two days after it's been on the menu, we'll take it off, you know? So <laughs> there's no real rhyme or reason. We just, again, we kind of just go in and do whatever we feel like. So it's not a focus on farm to table necessarily, but it certainly is how we practice. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you find your ingredients? Oh, man. <clears throat> well, I try 
with a lot of uh, so like with stirring soil or prairie birthday, I try to we try to have meetings at the beginning of the year and kind of plot out like what it is that we're looking for and we're interested in. Um, and then some of the things that I can't get from them necessarily, like I'll try to grow myself or, you know, for things outside of work, like we, uh, I'll do some foraging, been known to go out in the wild and pick some herbs and some greens and some flowers and mushrooms and what have you, but it is illegal. You can't do that in restaurants. So, so you do this for fun. Do it for fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so sitting down and, and looking at your calendar and trying to figure out what's coming in the back door as far as produce, that can change a lot with the weather. Mm-hmm. Um, so how, how do you kind of deal with that aspect of menu creation? We try to preserve what we can and still work within the paradigm given to us by the health department. Um, so we do pickle, you know, we do stuff like that. And we try to carry that through winter. So winter is the most troubling time in the beginning of spring, really the tail end of winter going into the right where we are right now. Right. Yeah. Right <laughs> is this where your we're hard headed. time? This is a more <laughs> difficult time. So we have a lot of, uh, a lot of squash and sweet potatoes stored up, but I mean, Beige and orange, it just gets so old near the, you know, near this time. <laughs> but, you know, we just try to roll with the punches and what we have. We, we're using a lot more grains right now. So, you know, we just try to try to deal with what's missing in the picture by adding something that we know we have access to. Uh, we have quite a bit of pickles in our cooler. We have quite a bit of stuff like that to use. So we have options. And we're not like a massive volume restaurant. So it's easy for us to preserve certain things and then, you know, be able to go back to them and use them a little bit later. So without worrying about in one day wiping out our entire, you know, collection. So Right. Um, you're surrounded by lots of art. So I'm going to assume that there's some inspiration there as well. Yeah, definitely inspiration. Um, and it's it's evolving always in there. So there's always, you know, there's we're about to put up and there's a new exhibit going up right now um with a artist summer wheat so you know it's cool because they all kind of change and so we always can go and look at something else and try to pull inspiration from that so um it's interesting it's the second time i've been in an art museum working i I worked at the nelson for a little bit prior uh to this like pretty early in my cooking career Uh so um yeah, it's really it's really easy to pull inspiration, more, mostly colors, you know, stuff like that. It kind of gives you an idea of what works with what. So, I don't, I don't, yeah. As far as like actual food content, though, it's, I mean, it's it's mostly just like aesthetics than more than it is the actual like food. Yeah, but you also have done some events, and I was at one of them uh, last year, where you pair with um, the artists and you mm-hmm. put on special dinners yeah. and. I'm I'm really curious how that kind of collaboration comes together because that seems like you know visual art meeting yeah. and very conceptual art meeting. You got to get something on the plate, right? Sure, sure. <laughs> um, at first, it was it was kind of difficult, uh, just because our first artist that I worked with was uh, Virginia Jaramillo, and uh, she's I think in her 80s now, and. She's uh, not necessarily the most electronically savvy person, so our email um, interaction was pretty minimal. So we, what we ended up doing with hers is we actually drew inspiration from one of the paintings we had called The Principle of Equivalence, which can be broken down in physics or kind of on a more philosophical level. So we approached it with that, and we also approached it with the colors of the painting. So we kind of made the entire meal reflect the painting itself. Um, but I would say, that I don't know. Like Angel Otero is from Puerto Rico. He was one of my favorite ones last year. We had a, um, that menu was actually based on the similarities between his and uh, my growing up, our background, and the food that brought us comfort when we were kids. So Mm -hmm. it didn't really necessarily reflect the art more than it did like our connection. And he's someone that I've actually become really good friends with from that. Um, The next one we have coming up is Summer Wheat. And we've been in pretty constant contact with one another and we're kind of doing a new format with it. Um, not necessarily the, you know, the coursed out dinner. I'm finding myself less and less attracted to that and less and less attracted to the idea of like the fine dining mentality. Yeah. You know, I love a beautiful plate, but at the same time there's a degree of stuffiness and it's, I, you know, I'm not saying that other chefs are doing this that are wrong because 
I do enjoy going out and eating fine dining, but you know, it just, it's for me personally, it just doesn't really necessarily do it for me anymore. So we're kind of approaching this next one with a little bit more of a community driven, you know, idea for the people who are attending. So really the way I see it is food should be an experience and not necessarily just about sustenance and about, you know, what your plate looks like. It should be about people engaging with one another, the community engaging with one another. And I think that's kind of the approach we might start taking a little bit more in the future. So, so what does that look like? Cause I know, um, yeah, people don't seem to want to sit down and, you know, course it out, like you said, Yeah, yeah. but at the same time, you know, there needs to be a little bit of, I don't know. I feel like there needs to be a little bit of program and I mean that in a loose sense, but sure, sure. like, so how do you, how do you kind of, what means, what does community driven mean to you, I guess? Um, well, we're just, I mean, it's not really, I guess I wouldn't say like a buffet, you know, like that, that's <laughs> kind of, kind of ponderosa. I don't even know if those still exist, but <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's, I guess you could consider it something like a grazing table, but just oh. like with more, more than just grazing to it, you know? Yeah. Um, it's, we'll have, definitely have like entree geared stuff and then we'll have like, you know, just basically sample bites of stuff and then dessert, like kind of all on the same table. Um, I've started dinners with dessert before. You have? Yeah, I don't really. Oh, I want to go to that one. Yeah, I don't really (laughs) have any classic training or anything like that. So I kind of like have the benefit of, you know, starting a little bit later in my life and being a little bit more, um, I guess, mature. (laughs) Don't don't hold me to that. (laughs) You know, I just, I just had the, I don't know. I don't necessarily, we don't have to like just do what is expected. So, and we're, none of us are really trained that way. So we can, it feels okay for us to be like, yeah, here's a grazing table. This is going to totally be worth it. But what the real magic is, is hopefully people are engaging with one another, you know, while they're up there and while they're, you know, eating. And like, I always enjoy having, I don't like having tables separated at dinners like that. I like to have them all together. So people are talking with one another, especially people who don't know each other. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the mentality behind it. Does that, does that answer the question? Yeah. <laughs> well, so, you know, I do event planning and I did an event with you um, out at Pal Gardens yeah, about place. a year ago. Yeah. yeah. And it was, a, it was a fabulous event. And one of the, and this is nothing new, you know, that big long table, right? That sure. sort of comes from the farm to table tradition, I guess, you right. know, when we started putting a long one out in the middle of a field and having a dinner and realizing that you can kind of blow the walls off of a restaurant you don't you don't always have sure. to be in that kind of a space and the thing i do like about that although it may have played out is that you do have to pass dishes right. so you kind of have to deal with the people on either side of right. you at least and hopefully that sparks conversation yep. and i think that is the hardest thing to sort of um get going well yeah especially now i mean people are so wrapped up in their phones, their emails, their work, their whatever it might be, social media, anything like that, we're so detached. And like, just to give people an opportunity, even if it's for an hour, to engage with one another, mm-hmm. I mean, that's the most human you can be, is sitting down and sharing food or art or music with another person, especially a person you don't know. I mean, it's a brand new perspective on life that you may not have considered, you know, previous to that engagement. So it's really important to me that people are talking with one another. Like there's how many people on earth? 7.8 billion or something like that. (laughs) And how many of us are talking to each other? You know, (laughs) like none, like we've become so isolated. So I just feel like it's important to have people engage like that. And if that means that you have to pass the potatoes and talk to someone (laughs) and pass potatoes and talk to someone, you know, I, I, I really appreciate those type of that type of environment for dinners and stuff like that. I just, I just feel like it's, I don't know, I get more out of it. It's more rewarding to me. Yeah. Uh, How do you feel about sort of the Instagram culture? And, you know, I'm totally guilty of this, but, you know, you're always taking pictures of the food you're eating and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's good for a restaurant. It's a lot sure. of, um, you know, good free word of mouth. But we're, do you ever want to just grab people's phones and throw them out the window or, you know, pass yeah. around the basket <laughs> and say, everybody put your phone in here? Uh, I've thought... I've, I've thought about it. I've thought about doing that during dinners. I mean, I can't impose those rules, for, you know, at my place of employment, but certainly on any independent thing, you know, that's not out of the question. But I, th- 
I don't know. I don't mind Instagram. I'm I'm active on it. I'm yeah. also guilty as you know charged, but I don't know. I'm finding myself less and less attracted to social media. Uh, it definitely benefits restaurants. It benefits whoever is using it if you use it the right way. You know. Yeah. Um, it helped me get set up with a dinner in Mexico in February. So it's you know there's if you use it as the as a tool, it's good. You know. Mm-hmm. But I mean, pe- I mean, people just live on it. So I think it's kind of becomes dangerous at that point because you are so detached from reality and you are getting your information and your news from that. And there's nobody regulating that. There's, I mean, not really, you know, I could go on there and say anything I want and, you know, there might be one of my few followers that are just like, I take that serious. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You know, there's, there's definitely the benefits to it, but you know, anymore, I'm starting to think that the, the negative side might outweigh that. So, I mean, how will we really know? You know, there's it's going to take more time. Yeah. Just like anything else. You know, it takes a long time to really understand what the effects of it is. So, Do you, do you feel like you need to, um, I don't know, step back? Or do you feel like it can be a platform for some of the causes that you are very interested in? Um. I think it's a good platform for some of the causes, mm-hmm. uh, for sure, and just for other people as well. I mean, there's a, a lot going on now, and a lot of people don't have a voice, and that is a good avenue for people, you know, um, especially more marginalized cultures that don't necessarily have an opportunity to voice what it is that they're feeling or, you know, voice, you know, what they think about what's happening in the world. You know, I mean, it's social media essentially started entire revolutions, you know, right? and that's powerful, but mm-hmm. it can also be powerful in the exact opposite way. So I, don't, I, don't, I think it is good to use that platform, but it's also good to be informed and use other resources other than just social media, especially coming to, uh, you know, talking about things as delicate as, you know, where we are socially, you know, where, where we are politically, you know, right? any of that. Do you feel as a chef that you because you serve the public, that you need to step back from controversial subjects, or do you dive in? I've never stepped back from controversial subjects. I kind of, I, I mean, I, I have an opinion, and the way I see it is everyone, and you know, if they have that format to put their opinion out there, they, you know, they do it anyway. Mm-hmm. So I, I certainly am not afraid to say how I feel about anything. I don't think I've ever had reservations about where I stand. You know, for better or worse, or for how, you know, a lot of people might not like where I stand on certain things, and I'm cool with that, you know? Yeah, and so, so would your employer necessarily be, like, I guess that that tug of war between, you know, inviting everyone and wanting everyone, no matter what their beliefs are, to yeah. feel good, as opposed to... Um, uh, I, I feel like, I don't know, They've I've certainly been vocal since I've been where I'm at currently and there's been no backlash or anything like that for it. I think that there is, I mean, it's really, how do I put this? <laughs> I just feel like to a certain degree, it would be inappropriate for any type of, uh, any type of boss or anyone to insert themselves into your political beliefs and not allow you to speak how you feel openly, mm-hmm. especially if it's on your own channel, right? If, oh, yeah. If I was on the cafe's page and I was like, yeah. well, I think Trump's evil, then I could see where they might have some issue with that. Even if that's what they believe or they don't believe, whatever, mm-hmm. it's not really necessarily the right place to, you know, insert those beliefs. But as far as on my personal, on, on the personal side, um, I'm not real sure that anyone's going to really ever be able to stop me from saying what I want to say. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll say it regardless because it's what I believe. And, yeah. you know, there's not... A, like I said, there's not a lot of opportunity for people to actually get out there and say what they believe in and, you know, how they feel about certain things. So right. I just kind of, yeah, I, I utilize it. I try not to get too crazy about it. Then, you know? I yeah. Don't, I, don't, I don't post politically like every day or anything like that. But if something's going on, I feel like it's important to say something about it. I will, you know. I mean, you look at places like uh, Pirate's Bone, the chef there, mm-hmm. you know, that's inspiring. Like people need to be talking about immigration. Like, the immigrants are who feeds everybody. You yeah, know? yeah. You know? So it's uh, you can go into almost any kitchen, and there's guaranteed to probably be one immigrant working in there. You know, and 
I think it is important that we talk about stuff like that because the, it is what makes America run. And yeah. Without immigrants in America, we're in a pretty rough position. And you're talking about essentially sucking the entire soul out of the country. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like that there is kind of a responsibility um, for us to talk about stuff like that, especially since it directly affects how we live and how we operate on a day to day basis. You know, some people might not agree with that. But I just feel like we, you know, on certain issues, I think we kind of do have a responsibility to talk about it. So. What are um, some of the food-related issues that you're passionate about? I, one I can throw out there, I know you very much are into food waste. but Yeah, are there, yeah definitely. Are there others, or let's talk about food waste, um, why that is an issue for you that you're very, you're very outspoken on? Sure. There's a lot of people not eating, <laughs> you know, like plain and simple. There's a lot of food deserts. There's... Uh, I mean, even in this city, I've lived in the city for roughly 20 years now, and uh, we're starting to see grocery stores pop up, Whole Foods and stuff like that. But, you know, it's not necessarily accessible still. You know, the prices are pretty high. Right. You, know, you go in, you know, last time I went in, I was like, about like 12 items, and it was like, oh, my God, it's like $80. <laughs> it's like, what's happening? But, uh, you know, it's not it's not accessible to everybody. And so when I when I see food just getting wasted and thrown out, it kind of hurts me because, like, I grew up with not a lot of money. And, you know, it's not like we were always just like a bountiful, you know, plentiful food everywhere. So I kind of, you know, I understood that struggle, and I knew what it meant to not waste anything, you know. Like, if you threw your pizza crust in the trash, you got in trouble. That's just what it was, you know. And so I kind of, I don't know. I think that kind of followed me. And I just, you know, food waste, I just, it's unnecessary. So we we actually, we recycle everything that we possibly can. Glass, you know, aluminum, all that stuff. We compost. Um, and then we just try to, like, mix things and keep them going until we're out of them. You know, we don't really... Like I said, we have a tiny, 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 tiny kitchen. So it's yeah. It's not like we have, we're sitting on a bunch of product. So mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, it's easy for us. But we have talked before, you use every single part of, of single certain part. things where, yep. you know, people will go, oh, well, I'm trimming that and throwing right. out. Yeah. I guess not a good example for you necessarily, but if I'm at home and I just cut the florets off the broccoli and I throw the rest of the stock oh, the away, are so you know, the, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's that's very wasteful. Yeah, we try to use every part of every plant and every animal that we you know that we use in there. Um, you know, uh, you made a good example of cauliflower or broccoli. Like those stems are actually delicious. Like especially if you steam them or something like that and shave them, mm-hmm. throw them on your salad or do them raw. They're so so good. So there's really no use to not use them. You know, I think it's we just kind of do what we see and then we don't think deeper. So, I mean, a lot of people you know, approach food that way. It's just like, this is, I see the florets on here. That's what I'm going to use. The rest of it will be disposed of and move on. And, you know, there's, you can get a lot of use out of that. I mean, you could, out of a head of cauliflower, you could probably for one person get multiple meals. So, yeah, you know, I'm not saying you want to eat cauliflower every single day for a week, but you know, there's, there's ways to use things. There's, you know, roots of plants that people throw away, you know, especially herbs in particular, um, parsley root and dill root and cilantro root are delicious. They're absolutely delicious. So, you know, when we order, uh, I use new roots for refugees a lot. Um, that's when they're growing. Unfortunately, they're not right now. But um, they I, they leave the roots on a lot of their herbs, and it's my favorite part. Like I'll just take them and eat them raw right there because it's just this amazing flavor that you kind of overlook. So. But, I mean, everything, seeds, flowers, anything you can get off a plant, you should try to use it if it's edible. So uh, you just don't know what kind of flavor you're going to get out of everything. So it might be your new favorite ingredient, you know. Yeah. So how do you know if something is um, good to eat or maybe not edible? Um, Look, I I mean, I constantly have my face in books (laughs) or on websites doing research. So, um, you know, if... You know, there's a lot of plants like in the wild in particular that are, you know, there's certain parts of it that are edible that are not. Like the mayapple, for example, it's not something a lot of people know about. Um, Every part of that plant is extremely toxic besides the fruit whenever it's completely ripened. And it's kind of like this Midwest citrus almost. It's It's really delicious, but you have to wait until it's completely, you know, it's ripe and ready, the fruit is. 
And the rest of the plant, yeah, you can't even mess with. I mean, it will make you really, really sick. However, they use that plant to treat uh, stuff like HPV and cancer too. So there's chemical compounds in that plant that are good for stuff like that. So someone had to do the research. Someone found out. Yeah. Maybe maybe the hardest way possible, but someone found out, <laughs> you know. But uh, it's, you know, you just you just put your face in some books or do some research. And if there's an ingredient that I don't understand or I don't know, I make sure to look it up before I try to cook with it. It just makes sense. I'm not really willing to put anyone at risk or myself at risk. So, uh, you know, we just try to do a little bit of digging before we get too involved with any particular ingredients. Yeah. You know, ones we don't know. Um. Most chefs, just from a bottom line sense, really want to have food waste reduced in their kitchen. Sure. But um, how do you translate that into, I think you take it even a step further. Um, it's more a philosophical yeah. um, bent for you. And, and how do you kind of transmit that to all the people who work with you? Like, hey, guys, I don't want to see such and such yeah. in the trash. This is delicious yeah um it's i kind of lacked out with my staff uh all the chefs i work with have this insane curiosity like i do so um they'll actually come up to me and be like do you think this part's edible is there something we can do with this so it's almost like effortless you know there's on a pretty rare occasion i'll have to be like why are you throwing that away like what sense does that make but i mean it's so rare i mean i've probably had to say that five times in the whole time I've been there. So like everyone, everyone there is, is really, really interested in kind of the same things that I'm into. So mm-hmm. I don't know how that worked out, <laughs> but it worked out. Um, I've never worked in a kitchen where that was the case, you know, until now. So um, I don't know. Everyone just kind of does it. You so. take it to a different degree than, yeah. than other kitchens would, correct? Uh, I mean, more than any that I've been a part of. Yeah. yeah. You know, not saying that that's the case in every kitchen or whatever, but it, for me personally, yeah, this is the first time I've had the opportunity to be able to approach food like that. Yeah. I wrote a story a long, long time ago about food waste yeah. um, from a much larger perspective, like how much Americans were throwing away and putting in their refrigerator and allowing to rot. Or, Pretty crazy. <laughs> you know, cutting yeah. off and throwing in the trash when it was edible. Right. And... I remember this probably the mid 2000s. There were no statistics from the USDA about food waste, and now, of course, that is a huge subject. There's sure. a, a good movement going on across the country. Um, how you know? How do you keep up on that particular subject, and and how do you feel about ways that we can do better on that score? Um, I. I don't know really how I keep up on it, to be honest with yeah. you. Um, I kind of, we kind of isolate ourselves in a weird way. So we just do the practices we think are right. Um, and I think that we're starting to see a little bit more attention to it because there's now an understanding that there's going to be food scarcity. And it's going to happen probably sooner than we anticipate, um, given the environmental condition we're living in. And the environmental disaster that we potentially could be headed towards. So I think people are taking it a little bit more serious now. Um, I could definitely see why it may have been ignored before for financial reasons mm-hmm. and stuff like that. The more you produce, the more people buy, the more money you're trying, you know, you're making or whatever. But uh, we definitely have to refocus how we're approaching life in general and as, as a whole, not just in food waste, but, you know, how how we're getting our food, where we're getting our food from. Are you getting your are you getting those truffles shipped from Europe? And why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. If you live in the Midwest, truffles don't grow here, you know? And those have to be flown here. Like think about the environmental impact of that. You know? So I don't know. We just try to think of things as like how could this possibly be a detriment to our environment? And how could this be a of benefit for us to you know procure certain things? And I think that there's going to start, you'll start seeing more of a shift that direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, ingredients are going to become wildly expensive if, if we keep on the path that we're on. And so it'll be less and less accessible, but it should be making people think a little bit differently about how they approach food. You know, um, this coming Saturday, I'll be talking at uh, Cultivate KC's Farmer and uh, Farmers and Friends. And uh, we're going to be, basically, the whole thing's going to be about creating luxury ingredients with what you are provided with here. So as opposed to 
reaching so far out of you know out Getting of your the area. Caviar from right. Russia and the, right. I mean, um, there's water that costs yeah. four hundred fifty dollars for a seven hundred fifty milliliter bottle. What? From Hawaii. What? But yet, in a lot of major cities in this country, you can't get clean lead-free water. Yeah. So I mean, if you look at Flint, Washington D.C., Detroit, I mean, Baltimore's water is awful. It's you know, uh, and just why would you pay that much for a bottle of water? You know, there's an absurdity that goes with the luxury ingredients. And there's no reason for that when we have so much beautiful produce and so much beautiful product coming from right here, from farmers who really, really care about what they're doing, you know, and they really care about their environment. So I don't know. I just, yeah, I can go on forever about it really, but. Give me an example of a luxury ingredient. Like what, what do you mean by um, that and how do you, how do you prepare that? So um, one thing in particular that I've grown really fond of, and this is, uh, late spring, early summer is Linda from Prairie Birthday Farm has these absolutely amazing roses. And I mean, they are the best. Um, I believe she called them antique roses. I hope she doesn't hear this and is like, you're so wrong. <laughs> but like, um, it's an heirloom variety. And uh, so what I did this year with them is I wanted to preserve that. And I wanted it mm-hmm. to be something that I can keep, you know, keep for later in the year. Um, so basically I stripped off the petals that were loose and I put those into a vinegar. So what you're doing is you're creating a vinegar and you're pickling rose petals. Um, there's, uh, roses are a little bit hydrophobic, so they kind of, you know, they don't just turn into mush like a lot of flowers would if you put them in a vinegar. A vinegar mm-hmm. will eat away pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I took the buds and I put those actually in honey, raw honey. And whatever residual water was left over from those flowers um, actually ferments the honey. And so I just let that sit for, I mean, now since June. We're in January, right? Oh, it's February. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is it? Um, <laughs> so what I have is this amazing, like, liquid gold that just tastes like amazing, amazing rose flavor. And then uh, I believe I use raw clover honey with it. So it's this incredibly just, like, floral product. But... You can't just make that. That just doesn't happen. You got to have the ingredients. You got to be able to find them, you know. But when she, I've been buying these roses for I think three years now, and I just try to load up every year. I just try to get as much as I possibly can, and uh, just try using them different ways, drying them or whatever. And uh, that seems to be the one. The the honey seems to be the real one. So I've done it with strawberries too. I mean, we grow really nice strawberries here. Like if the seasons are being kind to us. Uh, the strawberries are great. You partially dehydrate them, throw them in some honey, and, you know, you go back several months later and you get this great slightly fermented honey, not enough to be boozy or anything like that, but it's this really super intense, like, strawberry-flavored honey. Um, I have some now that's, I guess, from 2016, still in my basement. Yeah, and it is. I, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like I've never tasted anything like it in my entire life, and that's what I'm saying. Like that you're creating something that is very special and very particular to that time and place. And, uh, you know, that's, that's an ingredient that I, I hold in higher regard than I would say a truffle or caviar or $450 bottle of water. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I guess that's kind of how I would approach stuff like that. Yeah. And how would you use that on the menu then? Would you I've used it in several yeah. different things. I've used it with duck. I've used it with, uh, I've used it just in desserts. I've actually just straight drizzled it on stuff. I've used it in vinaigrette, stuff like that. So it can be used on many different, you know, levels. But I think the best thing to do is use it in its truest form and just let people taste that and understand what it means to age something that's not just a piece of meat, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the best way to eat meat is aged meat more often than not. But, you know... Like people, I don't think people think a lot about aging vegetables and aging produce and stuff like that because of rot usually is a concern, which is pretty legitimate concern. (laughs) But, you know, if you approach it the right way and you kind of understand what preservation is and how how to use it, your benefit and how to safely use it, I mean, you have the potential to create things that, I mean, that will blow people's minds. They'll never know. They'll never know that flavor previously and they might not ever know it again unless you use it again. So... To me, that, I think, is what luxury is, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think creating something that someone might not ever have the opportunity to eat again is, is a luxurious concept. So 
that's kind of, I guess, our approach to some, you know, certain things like that when we preserve. Um, pickling's less dramatic, but it's definitely, if you do it, you know, if you understand what you're doing, you understand flavors and you understand combining certain things, you can create really special ingredients that way as well. So I'm wondering about your childhood. Um, that pizza crust that couldn't be thrown away mm-hmm. and then this luxurious honey. <laughs> how did how did you become interested in food and when did you start doing it professionally? I didn't start professionally cooking until I was about 31. Um, before that, I'd briefly gone to culinary school. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I don't do well with authority, so I don't do well with people telling me how to cook or what to do. So I dropped out of that pretty quickly. Um, I didn't start cooking until I got, I stopped drinking and stopped doing a lot of drugs. Um, I was in a pretty interesting spot in my life. Um, and then I just kind of, I don't know, something just, I just gravitated towards food. I don't know where the connection was. You know, I didn't grow up in a, like a food oriented family by any stretch. We, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, and you grew up in Lee Summit, I right? I did grow up in Lee Summit, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was born in Hutchinson, Kansas. And then, you know, I think I lived in Pleasant Hill for like a year or something like that. And then we moved to uh, Lee Summit. Um, yeah, so I spent up to my senior year in high school, basically, graduated. And then not too long after that, I moved to the city. So, um, yeah, we kind of just had to appreciate what we had because that's what we had, you know. Uh, my mom, for a good part of my uh, growing up, was a single mom raising three kids. So, you know, she worked a lot and, you know, had to do multiple jobs. So we kind of learned how to fend for ourselves a little bit. But, you know, what we, we had, we ate. Like, there's not, you don't waste stuff like that because you don't have money to, you know, to go buy more. Or, you know, it's not just accessible to you when you don't have money. So, you know, we kind of learned, I kind of learned some cooking that way. That's how a grilled cheese ended up on one of our uh, on one of our artist dinner menus. <laughs> so, a good memory, huh? Yeah, a very good memory. Yeah, but uh, kind of cheese. Oh, American! It was American okay. and white bread. It was just straight up, just a just a grilled cheese sandwich. So, um, but I, I, you know, I don't know it. I don't know. I don't even know how I got into food. I'll be honest with you. I just kind of gravitated towards it. And you just woke it, up one day and said, I'm not going to do this, and now I'm going to yeah. do this? Yeah, I watched Anthony Bourdain quite a bit, you know, when I was, you know, still, you know, drinking and partying and not knowing what I was going to do. And I don't know. I maybe I thought maybe there was some sort of glory to it, you know, but, like, it didn't really cross my mind as something I was adamantly wanting to do, you know. But I just kind of started heading in that direction, and <laughs> things worked out. Did you start reading his books, or did you— watch his shows oh i watched his shows i mean Mm -hmm. like i was still fairly ignorant to food so Mm -hmm. you know like i just kind of i don't know i I guess it was more the culture that like uh, interested me like up to that point in my life i had never even left the country or anything like that so it was just like look at all these places look at all this cool stuff going on look at all this food look at how he's connecting cultures through food and you know through stuff like that and I think that kind of started piquing my interest, and then I don't know. Once once I stopped drinking and taking every drug I could find, like it just started happening, and it just I just started immediately gravitating towards it. And I, at that point, that sort of became obsessive about it, and that's kind of like where we're at today. So, so talk about some of the places that you trained because you don't have the formal training, Mm-mm. but you obviously I'm sure had mentors along the way or situations kind of. that gave you good creative license. Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time with bread and butter concepts, um, which is whatever I spent really Nathan Nichols, my chef there for a while, he was a chef to cuisine and then ended up being the executive chef there, uh, for a little bit. Um, he's moved on since, but, uh, I always liked, watching him cook and kind of seeing what he was doing because he's a really smart chef. And so I drew a lot of inspiration from what he was doing. Um, and then Carrie, who at the time was like a pastry chef there. Carrie uh, what? Carrie Kish. Kish? Yeah, yeah. And she's actually my sous chef now, one of my sous chefs. Oh, Yeah, I would, I would, I swear I would take her anywhere for the rest of my life. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, like, I got a lot of inspiration from her as well. And then... Uh, my buddy, I mean, my buddy Mickey and I, we started kind of just doing our own thing once we realized that we needed to 
I don't know. We just needed to exercise ourselves creatively a little bit more and independently. And that's Mickey so, Pariolo. How correct. did you meet him? Uh, Who is, we should say, general man? Or what? No. Okay. Um, <laughs> I met him through my neighbor. So um, it's a long, weird, weird story. Uh, we've actually had plenty of connections prior to us meeting. We just had never met because at one point he was in Dallas and... Uh, like at the time that I had gotten sober is right when I met him and uh, he ended up dating my neighbor. <laughs> so he was like my neighbor for nine years, pretty much. Um, or, you know, six, seven years, something like that. We lived in the apartment for nine years. So yeah, about six or seven years. But uh, he re- he went to a restaurant, Noma. And when he came back, like I had kind of developed my own philosophies and they kind of lined up with what he was learning and what where his mind was. And so we kind of just started learning how to cook things on our own. And so a lot of it was self-taught. Like it was just things, me being up until 4 a.m. in my kitchen in my apartment, just trying to figure things out, you know. Um, I worked at Bluestem for a little bit, and it was a pretty short time there. And, you know, I learned some things from that. I don't, you know. I don't really think that until recently I've learned as much about food through work as more of I had through like my own private time, mm-hmm. my own personal time. Did you give yourself your own coursework basically or did you just sort of follow whatever muse was? Whatever whatever got me excited. You didn't sit down and say I need to learn all the mother sauces no, right now? I don't even care about the mother sauces <laughs> to be honest with you. I, I, I think there's like a bit of – it's too strict and it's too, it's too rigid for something that should be more of a creative endeavor. Um so, I mean, fundamentals are nice to have, but, like, I don't really need to know what, you know, a bechamel is because I'm not going to put a bechamel on my menu, you know. It's just not what does it for me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'll put a hollandaise on some eggs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, like, I'm not really trying to – I'm not trying to do anything that is classic or, you know, I'm not trying to be French. I'm not trying to do anything like that. We just kind of just go. We just kind of cook. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's hard to describe how we operate because it's it's not normal. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's none of us are just like, well, we should put this classic sauce on here. Or, mm-hmm. You know, we should put asparagus with this. You know, we never think of it that way. We're always just like, well, what can we do with this ingredient and how can we manipulate this to make it shine the absolute most? And then how can we apply that to a dish or, you know, or, hey, this sounds insane, but it might work. And then we try it and it works. So... There's no real rhyme or reason, and there's no – I have no desire to be trained in any certain way, and I'm, I'm glad I never was because, like, I don't want to have a defined food. I don't want to have a defined type of cuisine. So it's boring, you know? Like, that's why I enjoyed doing that dim sum last weekend. None of us know what we're doing with Chinese food, you know? But, like, we made it ours, and we made it fun, and people really enjoyed it, and that's really what matters, you know? I don't think that, that we're appropriating food or I don't think we're doing anything like that. We're just we're cooking from our hearts and we're doing things our way. And like that's when you're free and that's when you think the most independently. And that's when you, I think, think the most creatively is when you're free. And we're all trying to find this freedom, you know, inside of our hearts and our minds. And we're achieving that. And I think that's why we have momentum. And I think that's why we're moving in the right direction is because we don't care what everyone else is doing. We don't follow trends and we don't care what chefs in, you know, Denmark are doing or chefs in China or chefs wherever. It doesn't matter to us. We just want to cook what feels good. Yeah. That's kind of how we approach everything. Now you went into a kitchen that had a very strong presence for a very long time in Jennifer Maloney. Right. And, she passed away a couple of years ago, and there were some starts and stops, I think, in picking the chef. But um, what what is that like? I, I saw you had a tribute dinner recently, so yeah. you're definitely keeping her memory alive. Sure. And, I mean, the, court, the courtyard's named after her. That's, yeah. That's a legacy that doesn't It's very go. touching. Right. Um, I never had much interaction with Jennifer. Uh, we had met, but that was it, you know. I hear a lot from other chefs about her life and, you know, through a lot of other people, how she was. And, uh, I mean, I know that she was adored by a lot of the community. And I guess, I mean, what I don't take that necessarily into account in how we approach what we do. 
but it has helped me mature a little bit on understanding what it means to somewhat maintain a legacy or if not honor a legacy. And, you know, there's not, you're not going to find much of anything left over on our menu that is from that era. And at times that can be difficult for people who have always come to that restaurant. And, you know, and I under, I do definitely understand where they're coming from in that perspective, but also, you know, we're trying, we're trying to prove that, you know, we're different from that time and that we are doing food differently and we're approaching things differently than that. Um, because regardless, everything's got to evolve. You have to keep evolving. If you don't evolve, you die, you know, and if you don't mentally evolve and if creatively don't evolve, then what are you doing? You know, you're just kind of, you kind of just die out at a certain point. And it's, we're not searching for relevance and we're not searching for acceptance, but you know, we're, you kind of inevitably get that when you change and you keep changing, you know, I think as long as we're honoring her memory and being respectful to her memory, then I think we're doing the absolute best we can to honor that legacy. Mm-hmm. That's not something I ever understood until now. I've never been in the position where, you know, one of my predecessors had died or, you know, something dramatic had happened like that. So mm-hmm. it's been an interesting learning curve for me because I, you know, I guess I just never thought of it until I got in that position. So it's been interesting, and I feel like that we're doing the absolute best that we can to honor that. So yeah. does that answer your question? I feel like it kind of just like started going off different directions. No, very much that. so. Okay. I think I think it's, um, I mean, I, I just think it's kind of tough any, for any chef to go into a place that had a very well-known chef before sure. and want to be their own person. And, you yeah. know, that, oh, yeah. that transition. Yeah. For the public, the diners, and right. for the institution, and for you, can sometimes be difficult. Yeah, a little yeah. rocky to figure it all out. I mean, it seems like it's working really well for you. It is now. There's a little yeah. resistance up front, but yeah. you know, it's. I mean, not from anyone at the cafe or at the museum, but definitely from some of the guests. You know, but I mean, on the dim sum, I had I had a lady who came in, and her intent was to go there to eat brunch. She wanted the corned beef hash that was just a dinosaur from the past, you know, and I went up to their, to their table and I was like, you know, we're doing, we're doing a dim sum menu today. This is honor of the lunar new year. So, you know, this is what is going to be available. And I was like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to try some things on here and I'm going to come out and I'm going to talk to you. And I went out and I talked to her later after they had eaten and ordered like four rounds of food. (laughs) And I was like, how is everything? And she was like, it's amazing. This is the best, you know? And I was like, all right, so let's talk about this hash. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, how about you come in in a couple of weekends, ask for me, I'll come out, we'll chat, and I'll bring you a taste of this. And you let me know what you think. Because I haven't had that opportunity with a lot of the guests who are kind of like still looking for the same food that used to be there. Mm -hmm. But I found this to be a pretty unique opportunity for me to go out there and just be like, hey, let's talk about what your expectations are and let me show you what we're doing and let's see if we can meet in the middle, you know, because I don't want to lose all these, you know, all the old guests, you know, I want them to still feel comfortable going in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's important. Like, yeah. that's a place where those a lot of people regularly go every single week, you know, we have a very steady, you know, reoccurring clientele. So I don't want to ostracize anyone like that. But at the, at the same time, you know, like if we were still doing all the same food, I mean, probably, we probably wouldn't be there, actually. <laughs> so, or you'd be bored to tears. Yeah, so, you know. exactly, yeah. exactly. So, people are becoming far more receptive of it now. So, well, it's, it's actually been fun to yeah. kind of watch, you know, happen. What's it been like to just have your own kitchen? Is it, did you have that opportunity before? This is the first time this you've been first, executive yeah, chef, yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a trip. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> But again, you know, I was fortunate enough to get the staff that I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a lot of turnover at that point there. And, you know, so I, I kind of actually had the opportunity to start from scratch. And so I got to bring the people in that I wanted and kept the people that were already there. You know, that well, the people, it wasn't even about keeping. They were just there, you know. And uh, I lucked out on that too, you know, because uh, one of them is still my sous chef, Darby. And to watch him grow has been probably one of the most rewarding parts of my job, you mm-hmm. know. But uh, it was cool, you know. It, at first it was difficult because there was that turnover. But, like, what I got out of it made it all worth it. And it, 
doesn't seem much different than doing any other thing. Because, like, again, I don't have to walk around and tell people what to do. Like, it just happens there. So, they know, huh? Yeah. Well, I mean, they yeah, they know because they know, and it's where their head's at, too. So mm-hmm. I don't really have to, like, be that executive chef that, you know, like, my voice doesn't get above this. Like, it's not, it's not a loud place. It's not like we're you know, screaming and like, ah, how long and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a really cool, very calm, collective, tame kitchen. And like, I feel really fortunate to have that because if I had to go in and instill all these rules for someone my, who personally is almost an anarchist at heart and like putting rules down is not my thing, you know, it's not what I want to do. And not having to do that has been awesome. So it's been a really cool experience like being for the first time being an executive chef. I don't necessarily think it would have ended up that way in a lot of other places had I had got had I gone somewhere else. Yeah. So, so you guys do lunch. Mm-hmm. No dinner. No dinner correct? anymore. Yeah. But special event special dinners. Special events, yep. Um and then how many events do you end up doing per year or is there a prescribed thing or is it just sort of no. here and there? Well, we're trying to uh, we're trying to actually increase the amount of like special events and stuff like that we're doing, or you know, like we did the dim sum last weekend. We would like to try to start doing some of that stuff more frequently. You know, explore other cultures' foods. Um, we do some special dinners, like the artist dinners and stuff like that. But um, we um, there's a lot of like weddings. There's a lot of corporate parties and stuff like that that we do. But we also get to write the menu for that. So you know, it's not like. We're like, okay, we got to do 20 pigs in a blanket or, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> like we kind of get to do, we get to have, put our impression on that as well. So uh, we stay pretty busy with special events and stuff like that, which is why we don't do dinner. You know, it became really inconsistent when we'd be open because if you have a wedding on a Friday night, you have to close the restaurant. Keep in mind, there's only six chefs in that kitchen. Like there's no way we could operate a full dinner service and try to like do a wedding, you know. It's yeah. a, and again, it's a tiny kitchen, so we had to pick and choose, and it benefits us more to do special events than it would be to stay open for dinner. And it really has increased the quality of life for us, too. You know, I've never been able to say that in a restaurant before either. Like, I get to see my son, and I get to see my wife, and I get to, you know, see my friends, like, who I forgot half of them existed <laughs> for a while, you know? So, and I get to travel, and I get to see, you know, I get to see more now. So, you know, it's it's... It's better, you know. I'm, I'm okay not having dinner. I don't need to show off on dinner. Like, it's not that big of a deal to me. So um, as long as we're cooking, that's all I care about. And so I think I tried to get a hold of you, I don't know, some day of the week, and I sent an email, and you apologized profusely, and you said, I really, when I'm not at work, I'm not at work, and yeah. I try not to, right. to answer email. So... I'm curious about that balance of life, which I'm sure is very, very important to you, given some of your history. Um, you know, how do you do that? How do you stay sane? Because in this industry, it can be can be very pressure filled and, you know, yeah. a lot of opportunity to go um, do things that aren't good for you. Yeah, um, it's easy. I yeah. just don't answer my email. Yeah, unless it's an unless it's an emergency, you mm-hmm. know. Um but it's a pretty self sustaining kitchen, so I don't have to worry about that as much either. But you know, if I if they're my days off, I don't I just keep myself separated. I have to, you mm-hmm. know. Like I don't want to be all absorbed in that. Like ultimately I really enjoy where I work and I really enjoy the people I work with, but I do work for somebody. And when I have days off, I don't work for anybody. And that's something that's important to me. And it always has been. And it always will be because I don't I don't need the extra stress, you know. I've kind of learned how to live a little bit more carefree. And I've kind of learned how to not have to, I don't know, sit there and worry constantly about stuff. Things get to me sometimes, you know. Mm-hmm. Like if something... Uh, you know, if something bad happens, which is pretty uncommon, you know, it weighs on me, but it weighs on me for different reasons. It weighs on me because I care about the well-being of my employees, you know, of the chefs that I work with and the serving staff and, you know, all the people I work with, that type of, you know, that weighs on me. But like, as far as like, just straight work, it's not, it's just not something I'm interested in bringing into my private life as much, you know. I'll tell people about what we're doing or whatever. If people ask me about it, I'll tell them, you know, what's going on. But 
I don't, it's just not something I, I don't know. I just like to have the ability to separate the two, you know? Like, I think that my personal relationships outside of work deserve the same attention that my work does, you know? Yeah, um, I think I think that's a healthy attitude. It's it's difficult, though, in an industry that's 24-7, it is. 365. Sure. What, so what do you do when you go home? Like, like, what are the fun things you like to do with your wife <laughs> and your son? Uh, close all the curtains. <laughs> <laughs> Hide in the house? Is that... <laughs> yeah. Well, my son, I mean, I get him, I only get him a certain, um, you know, amount of times, but it's... I always just try to do something that's creatively engaging with him, you know. But my wife and I, I mean, we just, we live it super quiet. We just bought a house in September, I think. So we've been spending a lot of time working on that. And at first, I absolutely hated it. I never wanted to buy a house. I never, you know, all these things. I never wanted to get married. I don't want to have kids. I just want to <laughs> just do me and travel and blah, blah, blah. And, like, the more I'm settling into it, the more I like it. Um, our house is pretty awesome. So it's been, like... I don't know. It gives us it gives us purpose, you know. And when people have purpose, and you're not just sitting around, then I don't know. I feel like that helps build healthier relationships. And so, like, we have a goal. We have a common goal is to get this place to be our home. Like any house is a house, but it's not a home necessarily, you know. So we spend a lot of time on our house. Uh, we do eat out quite a bit, so which is an expensive habit, but <laughs> um, you know, we just like to spend quiet time together. To be honest with you. I don't like, you know, I don't go out to bars. I don't do anything like that. So I prefer it to be a little bit quieter, you know. I think I've got a weird certain degree of PTSD from working in restaurants and the noise and the constant, you know, banging and, you know, yelling and everything's going on, this constant chaos. And like, I'd have to shut down. Like, when I get home from work every day, I try to spend like an hour of complete silence, you know. And so we try to do things that will take the stress down. So. Mm-hmm. A lot of relaxing. <laughs> Good. But yeah, yeah. And you told me that your wife is really pretty much the cook. When I she asked you about home. Super Bowl, what what were you going <laughs> to What snacks were you going to eat? You said, yeah, you're not preparing any of them. I'm going to eat all the snacks that everyone else makes. <laughs> um, she does. She does a lot of the cooking at home. It's yeah. awesome. She's a really good cook. So. And you don't have any trouble giving up the driver's seat there? No, no, no problem at all. <laughs> no problem at all. I mean, if she wasn't that good of a cook, I'd probably be a little bit more active. But she's she's a really good cook. She, I mean, she has a really good understanding of flavor combinations. She knows how to cook things in multiple different types of ways. So, I mean, if she's like, I'm cooking dinner, I just I know it's going to be good, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, here and there, I'll cook. So, But it's, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I just get home and... It's not really what I want to do, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, like I, people that say that they live and breathe 24-hour, 24-7 cooking and stuff, I, you know, it's not healthy. It's not a healthy approach. There should be different aspects of your life that you care as much about. And, you know, to be able to <laughs> have that weight taken off of me at home is, is nice. Yeah. Because it continues to allow me to separate myself from what I do every single day. So. And you're a baseball fan. I'm a huge baseball fan. I mean, you're you're good with the Chiefs, but you're yeah. a huge baseball fan. So oh. do you spend a lot of time then during the season watching games and I, chilling yeah. that way? Yeah, we don't do we don't we don't have cable. Uh we just do, do you go to the games? Uh here and there, yeah. Yeah. Uh if they keep toying around with this rumor of putting a stadium downtown, you can probably guarantee I'll be at about eighty a year. So <laughs> um but yeah, I, yeah, I love baseball. I love watching baseball. I mean She'll, uh, like, we'll be in bed, and she'll look over to me, and she'll be like, what are you looking at on your phone? I'll be like, oh, just baseball. And she's like, it's winter. There is no baseball. <laughs> and I'll be like, well, there's trades. There's people free agent signings. <laughs> I was like, you know, this year there was the whole controversy with the Houston Astros sign stealing. I was like, there's plenty for me to keep up on. <laughs> yeah. Know? But so, I do love it. So if there's any player, um, present, past, any team that you could cook for? This will be my ending question. Who oh, would you, who would you cook for? Uh, I have cooked for the Royals. Uh, oh, you have several times. Yeah, um, and was really cool was on. Uh, it was the year that we went to the World Series but didn't win in 2014. Um, this is when I worked at Grandma Dunn. Once a month, we would actually feed the players on both sides of the, uh, you know, of the game. Yeah, and so we'd actually get to go down to clubhouses and like bring food down there and set food out. And so, you know, once a month I kind of got to live out this crazy dream to be, you know, to be there. And it was so cool. Um, I don't, there's not anyone in particular I want to cook for to answer that question, but going back around, um, it was the night that they actually won the AL championship. 
that we were there and cooking. Oh, my gosh. And at first, Alex Gordon came out into the clubhouse, and he's like, you guys should come back here and check this out. And I was like, I don't know if they'll let us go back there. So I'm going to hang out still in the clubhouse. And then uh, Jeremy Guthrie came back, and he was like, you guys need to come back here. And so we got to go back there and watch him pop the champagne and, like, do the whole deal. No way. And it was like, it was, it was like a dream come true for me. <laughs> it was so awesome. I, that was probably my highlight of cooking, and that pretty much – I don't really need to cook for anyone else unless the Royals are going to go to the World Series again. How awesome is that? Um, it gives me chills right now thinking about it, to be honest with you. So it was it was a it was a cool experience. I felt like a little kid. So oh yeah. So that's a I mean huge reward, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. So well, to baseball season starting up very soon. Wait, there's no season. It's always going. It's always baseball season <laughs> for me. And. Um, <laughs> Go Chiefs. Go right? Chiefs, yeah. Yeah, it'll be huge for the city. I, I, I hope we win. Yeah. And to all you people out there that talked bad about the Royals for 35 years, <laughs> it's been 50 for the Chiefs. We got this this year, though. I'm, I think uh, we got this. It's feeling good, isn't it? Does, it? it feels really good. So yeah. It feels right this year. So. Well, it's been fascinating to learn more about you. I really appreciate you coming in and um, talking about so many facets of your personality and your cooking and your life. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Yeah. All right. We'll see you soon. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Chew Diligence. We'll see you again real soon with Lindsay. Bye-bye. <laughs>